this morning we start our new series, Hard Conversations. This is a series, Hard Conversations, that I've been looking forward to having. Now let's be honest, there are many hard situations, there's many hard conversations in life that we often do not have really good answers for. But we as humans really do like having answers. We do not like the unknown. We want to have answers for every situation and every conversation in life, don't we? Right? I have over a thousand books in my office and at home because I enjoy learning the answers. How many of you have a lot of books? Or maybe uh, you're like me and you have an Alexa device in your house, this little thing that sits in your house. I also have one in my office so that I can ask this little box questions. Alexa, what's the weather today? Today the weather will be 70 and mostly sunny, right? I like having answers about the weather. I can say, Alexa, what's on my calendar for today? You have a meeting at 12, right? I, I can be having a conversation with Katie and I can say, hey, how tall do you think the Empire State Building is? Well, who cares? Why well, here? Alexa, how tall is the state, uh, you know, the Empire State? And she'll answer me, I don't know what it is, 526 feet, something like that, right? You know, you and I probably also have been in the middle of conversations with people where we've been talking about something, and whatever we knew was pertinent to the, inter- uh, the conversation at hand all of a sudden wasn't in our mind anymore. It just slipped our minds, right? So what's the first thing we do? We don't skip it. We go, oh, I, I mean, this is important to this conversation. So we pull out our phones, right? And we start Googling things. We start looking up things or looking at Facebook to see what was that thing that I felt was so pertinent to this relationship, to this conversation. When we get intrigued about something we don't know, right? You know, yeah, the Grand Canyon is big. I wonder how deep that is. The first thing you probably do in a conversation is, Oh, that's how deep it is. We pull out our phones and look for it. I even thought about how many times recently at our men's breakfast, one of us has pulled out our phone to look up either a Bible passage or a fact because we thought it was so pertinent to the conversation at hand. We also love to diagnose our health by Googling, right? We love WebMD. Well, we kind of have a love-hate relationship with it. We Google our health symptoms to find out the answer of what we really might have. And if you know, WebMD and Google always reassures us that we are, in fact, dying. Right? It's always the worst-case scenario. Then your anxiety raises, and it's a whole bunch of fun. Now, before we had Google, we had these door-to-door salesmen that I remember coming. Especially, they loved to find older people, and they'd knock on your door. And they weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't go there, right? And they would open the door, and they'd say, we have... Encyclopedias to sell you. You can have all of the answers. All of the knowledge of the world is in this world encyclopedia. How many people still have encyclopedias? Well, there's still a few. I recently have gotten rid of mine, right? And then there was like the basic level where it was just introduction information. But then there was the call of GDIC kind of like level. And then they were like leather bound. I had one of those sets and I felt really cool. And I realized that we never opened them, Right? We believe that our pastors, our nurses, our doctors, our veterinarians go, should go to college and go to college for a long time so that they can be the best trained in their field 
so they can have all of the answers to every conversation and question in life. Now, for most of us, there's four things in humanity that we do not like not having. We don't like having money. We, we do not like when we don't have money. We don't like when we forget our phone at home, right? All of a sudden, you feel kind of weird in the world. We don't like when we lose our keys and they're either in the couch or they're at work or we're not quite sure where they are. And the fourth thing we don't like having is answers. Answers make us feel equally unprepared or naked. We are afraid of the unknown. We want answers that make the unknown now known. Answers are good. However, sometimes it's okay to admit that we don't have the answers. This is the reality of hard conversations. Now, last night, uh, I had to reflect. I was speaking at another church in Millersville. And uh, in my sermon, I was making this argument that we need to live out generosity without calculation. And in the audience was a group of college students who had come from a college. They, most of them were not of any religious background. Most of them would have probably identified and admitted to being either agnostic or atheist. And one of the guys who described himself kind of as a humanistic Jew came up to me and he said, I was tracking you, I loved your your knowledge of Jewish people. He said, but I I struggle with the idea that we're supposed to live out generosity without calculation. I said, why? He said, because doesn't God calculate at the end of days? Now I gave him what I thought my answers were to his question. But I also admitted to him, transparently, that's hard. It's a hard conversation, right? I've had family members and friends who never came to a place of faith. It is a hard conversation to address that what happens in those situations. It's easy for us to give a rehearsed answer, but it's a hard conversation if we'd be transparent about it. Over the past few months, I've asked all of you to begin to submit to me and to the table what you think are the hardest conversations of our day. Thank you, by the way, for those of you who took part in this. It was fun to see the answers coming in, and a lot of the answers kind of overlapped. And so some of the hardest conversations that continue to show up were, how do we wrestle with the difference between us in politics? How do we live in the world without becoming part of it? How do we answer questions about sexual orientation in light of the Bible, but also the personal experiences we have with people and our desire to love people? What are the right ways to do church? Or how do we remain in community with those that just see something completely different than us? Especially around really big issues. How do we begin to address issues in a polarized world? These questions and others submitted that we really do show, uh, they show that we really live in a time in which there are hard conversations. There are not easy answers, and sometimes we don't have the answers. We might be talking about some of those hard conversations in which I just named a little later, but this morning, the main intent of this series is to develop a healthier intent to our series. The vision behind our hard conversation series is for it to be a Sunday morning study to learn how we can reflect Jesus to one another as we face the hard conversations of our time. It's hopefully for a chance to learn what it means to have Christ-like conversations in an adversarial world. Now, if you don't know this, 
the church is really good. We as Christians are really good at being moral policemen in the world. We know all of the Christ-like answers. We know how to uphold them, how to reassure them with our politics and with our stance, how to speak them to people that disagree with us. But it's also important that we not only have Christ-like answers, but we have Christ-like conversations. We know the answers really well, but we don't always know how to answer like Jesus. You know, Jesus had some really unique ways of answering people's questions, didn't he? Sometimes when people would ask a question, he responded with a question. Sometimes he responded with a creative story to get people to arrive at their own solution. Sometimes he really did give this matrix of challenge and invitation where he told them, this is how it is, are you coming along or not? Regardless of what way he answered, he was always shocking and memorable, but he was hardly ever a moral policeman. It's because we failed to answer hard situations and hard conversations with love and humility that the culture of the world around us has almost completely written off the church. Those like Gandhi have said, we love you, Jesus, but you're Christ. I mean, we love your Jesus, but you're Christians, we just don't get. In some ways, we've become really good at living out in the world's eyes the bumper sticker that says, Jesus loves you, but everybody else thinks you're right, you get it. Recently, I watched a friend who lives in the South pose the question, what do you believe was telling the truth? Who would you believe was telling the truth in the Supreme Court here? So he took to Facebook. He wanted to see where Christians were at. And I'll tell you, that conversation went nuts. It was full of embarrassing attempts at conversation from Christians. Now, I'm thankful that Facebook has that feature where you can hide people because I was just getting so turned off by what I saw. Literally, this conversation, I could not tell where some people's political lens started and ended and where their faith morphed as well. The world sees this too. Those struggling with answers and doubt in our mix see it too. And I'm not saying we don't have and face hard conversations. That's what this series is all about. It's important to have these hard conversations. However, it's important that we learn to be Christ-like about it and not jerks and idiots. Even in churches, our conversation around worship, our conversation around pews, our conversation around the way somebody does something, or the way somebody dresses, comes not from Christ-likeness, but from where? Our comforts, our preference, and our expectations. As a result, we read our lens into Jesus. And anything that stands in the way of that lens is automatically evil, and we fight it to the point where we can't fight it anymore, and then we just give up. No conversation should ever be started with our bias, but too many times in the church they are. M. Robert Mulholland says this, Spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. Let me say that again. Spiritual formation is the process of being formed, conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. And in other words, it's not about, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about them. It's about you. What does Christ say about this? And what can I do about this? And how can I approach it with 
uh, with being conformed to that ideal, not for the sake of myself and for my comforts, but always for the sake of others. Those others need lifting up in our context. It's lifting up those who are not here yet, looking around saying, who is it here? Who is it that struggles to be here? And who is it that are in our neighborhoods and spheres of influence uh, we are called to put first, even if it goes against what we have as a preference? It's essential we develop our answers, and we are going to work on that in this series. But it's also important that we get a posture to be Christ-like in our conversations. Now, when you leave today, inside the lobby, you'll see there's a blue table. And on that blue table, there's two things that I encourage you to pick up. If you have not already, there's a free little devotional booklet that goes along with this series. It is not anything deep, and it kind of just will rehash some of the things that we're talking about through this series. But it's just a great resource to have in front of you. And I also encourage you to pick up one of these and hand it to a friend somebody who is not in our mix and tell them that they are wanted here and that we value having hard conversations with them because so often we only know how to handle hard conversations through our lens and through the lens of people like us. Now, have you ever played the board game Taboo? How many people have? It's one of my favorite games. On this game, you you have a stack of cards, as you see there, (coughs) and you pick out a card... And you try to get through as many of these cards as possible in a short amount of time. And on each card is a word, a word that you're trying to get your guess your get your team to guess. The only thing is you can't say that word. In fact, then there's five words underneath it in which you cannot say either. So if your word is ocean, they'll probably tell you you can't say blue, wet, wave, sand, okay? And so you have to find a way to describe that word and get your team to guess it without using one of those descriptors. Now, somebody on the other team has this fun little buzzer, that pink thing on the screen, and their job is to watch over your shoulder and make sure that you don't use that word and make sure you don't use any of their descriptor words. If you do, they squeeze that button, and it makes one of the most disgusting buzz sounds ever. If you're like, it kind of sounds like our Sunday school bell, to be honest. Like, that... (laughs) That's the most disturbing sound. I, I, that thing would make me jump out of bed. Anybody with me? Like, right? Like, it's kind of like that. I mean, it also sounds like a razor. I've seen people like pretend it's a razor, right? <coughs> so often when we begin to talk about hard conversations in the church, it feels like there are certain people, certain church members that stand around with the buzzer. There are hard conversations in the church that we consider taboo. And when those taboo conversations come up, here comes the frowning police force of church members that stand on the outskirts of the conversation and keep pressing that buzzer to you, give it up and move on. In 2013, Relevant Magazine did a survey of what they thought was the top five most taboo conversations in a church. They said it was addiction, sexuality, sincere doubt, mental illness, and loneliness. I think the buzzer probably went off in a few of your minds when I said some of those words. We can't talk about that. Like, right? I think I would add to that overall that the talk of sex, politics, and wealth are taboo in our church today. Definitely heard some buzzes there. There are hard conversations that we make taboo in the church often. How to Christians vote, 
How do we face social justice, immigration, racism, the Me Too movement, abortion, war, violence, immigration, uh, inequity, inequality, excuse me. What connection do our faith and politics have? What, what does the connection look like between how we believe and how we behave? These are hard conversations that we're often scared to address. Now, likewise, there's conversations in our workplace that are taboo too, right? Most jobs tell you there's a couple things you don't talk about. You don't talk about religion and stay away from those. It makes a really crazy workforce, right? We never talk about religion or politics. And perhaps this age-old recommendation finds itself even more important in a day where it seems that culture has continued to polarize over a number of hot issues. For example, there's been hot issues in our news feed lately, especially around the Me Too movement that has continued to divide people at dinner tables, in church communities, as well as workplaces and even our media. This week, the Supreme Court has listened and began discerning through deep allegations against the U.S. judge. What I noticed is, though, that we as Christians tend to live in echo chambers of those that we agree with. I watched countless friends post their viewpoints this week, and surrounded by those that share their viewpoint, we then see a war zone develop of insulting the inferior viewpoint. The last people that really thought inferior of other people were called Nazis. Is that what we resemble to the world? This picture you see up here is called the echo chamber effect. It's an actual thought process. There is an initial input of an idea. You tend to watch then your news sources and hang out with people and talk to them that share your worldview. And the more that the idea repeats in your friends and your media streams, the more it gains strength in you. And as a result, it not only becomes the most essential and essential thing to, central and essential thing to us, we then continue this process of finding more people and more news sources and more books that reassure us of our worldview. If you don't believe me, all of you that have raised your, uh, all of you who have been in a church and a Christian for at least 30 years, raise your hand. Now, leave your hand raised, oh, keep them up, but only leave it raised if you still have many friends that are non-Christian. Over half of you probably put your hands down. Few of us, when we have been in the church for 30 years, still know what it means to have relationship with many people who are not Christian. In many ways, if we're not careful, faith itself can become an echo chamber. These echo chambers can be both a great strength to us, right? They keep us developed, they keep us accountable, they keep us engaged, they teach us answers, but they also teach us to posture ourselves in conversation more like moral police than in universally unifying ways. The more we only hear opinions of those that we agree with, we find out that our ability to relate and think objectively is non-existent. It goes downhill. We begin to only speak in absolutes. I find this in conversations a lot in the church. Speaking in absolutes. Well, if it's not that, I'm not going to play in the sandbox, right? The more we hear only opinions of those we agree with, we find often that we lack grace and mercy in effort of trying to prove our point. Proving our point becomes the most important thing. 
We become points of division rather than truth seekers or people of unity. And I wish we had time to talk about the polarizing and adversarial conversations around these difficult conversations that we named uh, and how they not only impact us as a church, but the way they impact the way people out there, not out there, they're all kind of past, but the people out there uh, look at us and, right, that's a cemetery, did you get that, right? And uh, the way that people look at us and the way it's affected their view of us. Folks, this isn't anything new. For over 2,000 years, the church has struggled with divisive issues. The truth is that division stemming from hard conversations has always been very alive in the church, both in individual conversations as well as Christianity as a whole. In fact, religion can sometimes even make worse divisions. As one group from another claims to have the truth, of the biblical position, and another group says, no, we have the truth of the biblical position. And in this way, it's convenient how the Bible can be used to perfectly match both the political and the theological beliefs or convictions of both of those groups, isn't it? How can two opposing people both use scriptures equally? We do this because we tend to approach the scriptures and our faith with our echo chambers, with those things, those experiences, those lenses that we already have, rather than engaging God as an empty slate. What we tend to neglect also is the, pomer- the posture that we know how to use and engage hard conversations and still reflect Jesus. We enter conversations with our political leanings, with our ideology, our theology, and the need to be right our answers instead of Uh, listening. We tend to, when we don't like the way somebody's leading or doing something, we tend to shoot for the juggler. We know how to personally attack them or tell them they're not good enough. What is left is a posture that's actually more evil in possession of the evil, and more in possession of the evil one than the biblical one. No matter how right our way of thinking is, we need to have healthy posture. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13 today. In the moments of hard conversations, the church is always faced with the challenge. Do we reflect the divisions of our culture, or can we challenge ourselves? Can we transcend and overcome them? Do we run away from hard conversations, or do we believe that the Holy Spirit can unite us in them? More importantly, can we reflect Jesus as we wrestle with these hard conversations? As a pastor, I can tell you that watching other Christians on Facebook is embarrassing. I can tell you that the way sometimes people address letters or comments to me is embarrassing. There is this personal attack rather than let's look at a scriptural one. When looking at his followers, though, Jesus realized that his followers needed a lot of help. He looked at them, and here, here was these ragtag guys that were fighting about who was going to be greater in the kingdom, right? I mean, hey, can we sit at your left hand? Can we sit at your right hand? Like, you know, he likes me. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves, right? And we see this coming on. Jesus is like, guys, when I leave, stuff is going to get a lot harder than this, and you guys are still fighting about who's going to be greater? And so he gathers them together in John 17. And he prays this, and let this be our prayer as we engage this scripture this morning. Jesus, like you, we pray. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all those who ever believe in you through their message. I pray that we will all be one, just as you and God are one. 
And as you long to be one in us, Father, we are one in you. May they, may us be one in each other so that the world can believe that you sent us. Amen. You know, at the core of who God is, God, Holy Spirit, and uh, Jesus, there is this idea of community, a trinity. He is the perfect relationship, and I love that language, perfect relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church is called to mirror that relationship and community with each other, but it is also called to use that as its strongest witness to the world to inspire belief. A divisive church, an unhealthy church, proves Christians are dysfunctional and divisive. A healthy church is one that puts the sake of others first. And these hard conversations can be addressed with unity in our approach and answer shows what God really speaks to those around us. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible or on the screen overhead. And much like today's time, this was written in a time where the church was heavily divided. People were kind of confused about what was the importance of their Jewish roots, what was not, what about these pagans that have come into the church and the things they are bringing, you know, what about these things that, you know, Jesus threw in the mix now, the Holy Spirit. I mean, they're kind of divisive, and you know they're divisive because 2,000 years later we're still fighting about them. And Paul's looking at his church in Corinth, and he's like, dude, what is wrong with you guys? Like, Seriously, we're Christians, and you guys are fighting about if you're circumcised or not? You're, you're fighting about if people from the neighborhood are coming into your church? You're fighting about the Holy Spirit? You're allowing that, that thing of God's presence to divide you? And so he writes to the church and writes this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and could fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I can have, maybe we could say all the answers, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. We're going to look at that next week. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It does not become self-seeking. Me first, preference first. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Now, it's interesting there, we find this, yeah, we like to know the truth, we like to know the answers, but knowing the truth We rejoice with it, but it always still protects people. It always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. When I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the things and the ways of childhood behind me. Problem is, we have churches that are full of 80 and 90-year-old people that are still thinking like child. Right? Because we haven't understood how to have Christ-like conversations. We only know how to have Christ-like answers. And, and for now, we see only reflection as in the mirror. 
Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully. Even now I'm fully known. And now these things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now in some ways, Paul in this passage begins to give us a posture of hopefulness. It, it helps us know how to handle these hard conversations of our time, those conversations we listed. It also uh, should give us hope that, hey, that church was struggling with equally as divisive stuff as we are talking about now. And uh, they worked out all right. I mean, sure, not many of them are still around, but there's, there's something hopeful about realizing other churches struggle too. While the church community has never handled conflict well or perfectly, it has always tried to be a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Same thing is true of us as we disagree. <coughs> Even people that, that I disagree with, I can honor the ways that they still want to uphold Jesus and his kingdom. This hard conversations is really about developing a posture in which we find ourselves approaching these hard conversations with love. Regardless if they're happening in our church, in our social media feed, at our dinner table, at our family dinner table, or at work. And regardless if we're talking about hot-button issues like politics, race, violence, religion, worldview, or justice, we can bring to that moment, whatever the topic is, a Jesus-following posture— that leads to actual life-changing conversations. Heard a whole bunch of buzzes when I named some of those words there. I want us to look at ways in which we can continue to reflect Jesus in right answers in these tough situations. We're good at being right. Most of us aren't good in doing it in a way that can still help others see the rightness or feel that. Because we haven't learned how to reflect Jesus in our conversations. We only know how to be right. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at five affirmations, one affirmation each week, and five scriptures in which I think can help shape our approaches to hard conversations. This morning, out of this great passage of scripture in which I want us to really kind of bookmark in our Bibles and take with us through this week is really just 1 Corinthians. Uh, one, uh, I didn't put it up there, right? Just one passage. Just, I, and I encourage you to hold verse 12 before you all week. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So I encourage you this week to wrestle with this verse, to hold it before you, to continue to process it. And, and there's something about this that I really like. I love the idea of how do we learn to realize and approach humility that, that we only get a reflection of this? We're only being faithful to what we hear God saying. Uh, we know that someday we'll see face to face. We know that we only get some of this truth in part. We might not have all the truth, though we like to act like we do. And I shall know fully, even though I'm fully known. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I love this idea of reflection. Because in photography, I love when people take what's called reflection photography. Anybody like photography like this? Reflection photography, a lot of times, you can't tell which is upside down. I mean, I could turn that picture upside down, and you wouldn't know it was upside down, right? Far away, as this picture is taken, we see how beautiful it is. See how much the reflection looks like the sky. It's almost perfect 
reflection from being far away. However, we as a church community, a healthy church community together, would give the same kind of reflection to those in our neighborhood that are looking in far away if we knew how to engage conversation with them. The truth is, though, we're close up on the water. If we're in those trees somewhere far away from the angle of the photography, uh, and we were just staring at the water, knowing there's a sky over ahead of us, but we can't see it, and so we're just looking at the water reflection. That water reflection up close for us isn't going to look as perfect and beautiful and scenic and as imaged well as it does far away. Because there's distortions in the water. There's rocks, there's ripples, there's shadows. There's a reality that I can only see so far. So why from a distance it may look perfect of the reflection of the sky? Up close, we only see a glimpse. Paul says that the kingdom is the sky, and we're only seeing a reflection of it. So let's be honest. Trying to read that sky through a reflection that we have before us is imperfect. Because it has distortions, it has distractions, and often we bring things with us that already shape what we are going to see. That's not a sky. That's, I don't know what that is. I know that's not a sky because I've seen a sky before. Right? We see the reflection of the blue sky, but we could also miss the storm that's over the ridge. So let's read this again. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, Then we shall see face to face, and now I know in part, and I shall now fully even know I am fully known. So just as we move along in this series, today there are five notes I want us to take. And on the back side of your bulletin, you'll see some places where you can fill these in. On the back of your bulletin, there's some underscores. And this is just a way to help us process these things later on. In this verse that we just looked at, verse 12, we see this. We own that God knows the whole truth. We own that God knows the whole truth. In this verse, we see that Paul, as he writes his church, acknowledges that we only see a reflection. However, we acknowledge that God does have full truth. We might say that we're swimming in a culture of relativism. You've heard that, right? We live in a time where everybody's right. Every point of view is considered valid. There's also a time period when somebody's claim to know truth better than someone else may lead to accusations of being arrogant. Understandably, in response, Christians have often emphasized the unique claims of Christ and proclaimed this lordship of Jesus above all earthly powers. That automatically makes the Christians feel what? To the world around us. Arrogant. It's true. But we come off that way. This is right and good. However, we need to make an important distinguish between God's perfect truth and the way that we like to try to know and uphold and argue truth for ourselves, a truth that is very distorted and distracted and imperfect. We only see a reflection. So we humbly realize that God knows the truth, but we posture ourselves knowing that and that we automatically don't hold all of the truth. Secondly, we pursue God who reveals that truth to us, right? We press in for more, but we also realize that it's our job to interpret it. And our job is flawed. Though we see in part, we realize that, and realize that this verse promises kind of an upward trajectory. The more we press into God, the more truth we get. As these other intermediate things disappear, we learn more and more of God. We know that pursuing God will bring us closer to the truth in which he reveals. 
That's why God gives us the Holy Spirit and his gifts. It helps us hear his heart and to know his truth. But God has also revealed himself in the coming of Jesus, the giving of scripture, and this pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Humans are imperfect recipients of revelation. We bring our own weaknesses, lenses, biases, cultural blind spots to our understanding of God's revealed truth. One doesn't have to look very far in the history of mankind or even as the church to watch faithful Bible-believing people divide and call themselves reformations and things like that. Things that we uphold and divide over that later prove to be false. Think of the examples of the religious wars in Europe after the Reformation or the justification of slavery on biblical grounds. Enormous human suffering has occurred because some people's quite sincere belief was that that's clearly what Scripture taught. We pursue God for more truth, but we posture ourselves realizing our interpretation of it is wrong. You know, often when I have a prophetic word even, I, you'll, you may have noticed that I will say, I believe God is saying to us. I don't say, God said, right? Because what if I heard wrong? What if, what if I just ate some bad pizza too late last night, right? So when I approach prophetic words, I don't want to ever speak for God. One of the things I heard an Amish guy say one time was the worst thing we can ever do is speak for God. And so I always try to see it. I think or I believe what God is saying is this. And it leaves room open for that humility. Our approach to truth must be known or made by known with God with humility. Our approach to truth made known by God, must be with humility. In Paul's letter, as we read it, we notice an overwhelming sense of humility. There are times to lead company. There are times to boldly go in the direction God is giving us. We see that with Joshua. What's God say? Brace yourself like a man and go, right? Like, lead the people. Stop, like, dilly-dallying around. However, this verse transparently admits that a church in this time of Corinth was also dealing with division And they thought they had all the answers, and they were fighting about who had the right answer, but all of them only saw in part. So Paul, as their leader, models transparency. And he says, you know what, I know leaders are expected to have all the answers, but I too only see in part. It's important for us to uphold verses like Proverbs 15.1 that say, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger found this to be often in the church. We're quick to want to kind of push our truth across with an extra, right? We're pacifists, but when it comes to telling the truth, we're pacifists with it. Get it, pacifist? <laughs> you with me? Let's approach truth that God has made known to us with humility, aware of the distortions that are in the water. In the pursuit of truth, God also makes us aware of, of our stuff. In verse 13, we see Paul said this, I shall know fully even now as I am fully known. I love this idea that as we pursue God, he becomes more fully known to us, but we also become more fully known to him. God is always pursuing us. We are always becoming fully known to him. We are surrendering ourselves over to him in this process. 
And as we pursue God's stuff, what happens as we look in the reflection is that sometimes we realize the stuff in us is actually the problem. It's the stuff that needs to go. And so when we enter hard conversations, often we come with this idea of truth. But what happens if we check ourselves first and go, God, I see this as the truth. But how is that in me? You know, that we often say the thing we hate the most is actually the thing that we are, right? The thing that we often point out in other people are often the thing that we are struggling with. It's important we address truth. But we also need to make sure that as we push in for God's truth, we're aware and self-aware of what that truth means for us and what it changes in us. Lastly, we approach life with open hands, owning that God has all of the truth but also that we don't have a perfect understanding of it. It's important that we realize this and remember. 